Well, we are back in Colossians chapter 3, and we're in our third week of a five-week series on identity in Christ. As I was thinking through how to segue into this particular section today, I recalled being at Dallas Seminary in the early 2000s and having a professor bring in a couple of Africans, a couple of students actually, or, or former students. One was named Celestin Musicara, and he was from Rwanda. And just a few years earlier, he had been at Dallas Seminary working on his degree when he got horrible news from his home country in Rwanda. You see, the genocide was underway. It was the terrible, terrible murder after murder of Hutus and Tutsis, two tribes warring at one another. They had been at enmity for years, centuries perhaps. And he got word that his own village was attacked and 70 people from his village were murdered, including those from his own family. Israel will tell you, it was from the Congo where a majority of it happened, that with a million people lost in that conflict, everyone knows someone. Everyone has someone who died. The pain runs deep. And for Celestin, he remembers distinctly the battle for his mind. The rage that ran through his heart and his mind, the desire for revenge to get back at those who had hurt him and his village so much. And yet he's in seminary and he's studying the Word of God and he knows what Scripture says about forgiveness. Conflicted, quote, he wavered between seeking reconciliation and seeking revenge. And as horrible as he felt, Musikara finally came to realize that he needed to take his own medicine. He recalls praying, quote, Lord, if I can, and if you give me the peace, I will forgive them even before I know who they are. And not long after that, he realized that it was to be his ministry to go and seek reconciliation among the Christians between these two tribes. When he returned to Rwanda, he actually met face to face with the young men who were close relatives of those who had taken part in the genocide. Hatred for them coursed through his veins, but he did not want to be filled with hate. Quote, I knew they were my brothers in Christ, and even though it wasn't easy, I had to demonstrate what I believed, and I asked them for forgiveness for hating them. They were stunned, but they accepted his request. Musikara explains that they were not just empty words, for shortly thereafter he found himself loving the killer's children, even taking them to school, caring for them as though they were his own. At times he wondered if by forgiving the murderers was he betraying the memory of his family members, Quote, but he knew that as a mature Christian, he needed to open himself up, watch this, to the kind of forgiveness Christ offered to the people who nailed him to the cross. He started a ministry called Alarm, African Leadership and Reconciliation Ministries. 
He says he moved from working with pastors to lawyers to mayors to judges. But here's what he told them. It is the church that brings about forgiveness. What do we have here? Because the West has no concept of this kind of racism. We have no concept of these current day wrongs. A million people were murdered brutally. Real wrongs. And yet we see real gospel and real forgiveness. We see real reconciliation that is only brought about by the blood of Jesus Christ. Amen? You say, well, Pastor, you're starting out pretty strong this morning. You know, sometimes we need a wake-up call, don't we? We need a wake-up call to what we're really talking about and the power of the gospel. And that's what we have in this chapter. Would you pray with me? And we'll look at it together. Gracious Father, we do ask that you would bless our time. That you would give us an understanding beyond even what our minds can handle as to the greatness of our Lord Jesus Christ and how identity is not only found in Him, but through Him in the Gospel of Christ, we have reconciliation with Him. We are at peace with Him. He loved us with a love that we cannot even describe. A love that does what is best for another regardless of the cost. And now we are called to not only love Him in return, but to love others with that same kind of love. Love that is possible because of the love that happened at the cross. Father, I pray as we study this text today that our eyes would be opened, that our hearts would be strangely warmed, and that we would become bold for the only true means of reconciliation, the person and work of Jesus Christ. It is in His great name we ask it. Amen. Well, three weeks ago, we began our series on the identity in Christ from Colossians chapter 3. We're looking at verses 1 through 17. And as we parachuted into this text, we had to ask ourselves what the Colossian church was dealing with. And if I could just do a quick recap to bring us back up to speed, turn back a page to chapter 2, verse 8. You see, there's worldly philosophies that have entered into the church Teachers, well-recognized, beloved teachers are teaching things that are contrary to the gospel because they add to the gospel. They have the appearance of wisdom, but are nothing but self-made religion that cannot save. In fact, it's a religion that is really another gospel, one that stands at odds with the one true gospel. Whereas the gospel of Jesus Christ is built upon the foundation of His person and His work, These worldly philosophies were built upon atheism, apart from true theism, true theology of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 8, it says, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. And as a result, this is what was happening. Verse 16, Therefore, let no one act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, 
but is the substance, it is the substance that belongs to Christ. Verse 23, these matters which have to be sure the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. Now, we don't know exactly what heresy the Colossians were dealing with. It seems to have a, a Jewish syncretism to it, some asceticism, definitely man-made tradition and laws that were intended to say, basically, if you want to have favor with God, if you want to be like the chosen people, the Jews, you need to celebrate this day. You need to do this. You need to not do that. And they were adding to the free grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, although it may have a bit of a different flavor, what we see today with wokeness is the same thing. Man-made traditions, man-made rules for holiness that in fact don't produce holiness at all. Things that add to the free grace of the gospel at the cross. And rather than unite the body of Christ, they divide it. Specifically, we, we spoke about how these philosophies... Words like critical race theory, egalitarianism, intersectionality, social justice, and various other philosophies all wrapped into what we call, strangely enough, wokeness, that they are contrary to the gospel. They too are built upon an atheistic foundation, a socialistic Marxist philosophies, and it has an anti-biblical view of anthropology. In every case, in every heresy, man is elevated and God is denigrated. Think about it. Man is much better than the Bible says he is. He's not totally depraved. He is wiser. And worldly philosophies help us attain either to a higher spirituality, a forgiveness apart from Christ, or in some cases, a godlike state. And in every case, the God of the Bible is denigrated. He is neither sovereign nor good. And if you have to sum what is going on, if you have to sum the, the lens that we need to see through with regards to recognizing and rejecting wokeness ideologies, it is understanding your identity in Christ and the sufficiency of Christ. I would say those are the twin lenses that will help you with almost anything that comes down the pike. Your identity in Christ and the sufficiency of Christ. You get those things right, like twin lenses on your glasses. It will help you recognize error. With wokeness, we become judge over one another. There is no forgiveness, as Daryl said this morning, and penance becomes the only means of forgiveness. And like the Colossian heresy, it is syncretistic. It, it, it seeks to wed worldly wisdom with Christianity. In fact, you'll, you'll hear a lot of Christian terms. This, this worldly ideology is coming forth from our pulpits. It's coming out of Reformed theology, shockingly enough. This is not coming out of liberal Methodism or liberal Presbyterianism or the Unitarian Church. This is coming out of people we have trusted, dear friends, books we have on our shelves. And you have to ask, why? It's something we're going to get to in the coming weeks. Look, Paul makes no bones about this. With the Judaizers and Galatians, he calls it a different gospel. Here in Colossians, he calls it worldless 
worldly ideology, philosophy. Jude talks about contending for the faith. As I mentioned a couple weeks ago, this is not some hobby horse of mine. This is not some third-tier doctrine we can all have different opinions on. This is an affront to the gospel. How do I know this? I don't have to be a brilliant PhD to know this. Anything, anything that attacks the person or work of Jesus Christ, that denigrates the free gospel of grace, that raises man, that expects the unregenerate to be able to attain to a higher level apart from the gospel, is an attack on the gospel. We must realize this, and we must reject it. And yet, that is not nearly enough. Because we have to pursue people with the love of our Lord Jesus Christ. The love that loves one another regardless of the cost to us. And so we, uh, we pursue them with the truth. The truth spoken in love, Ephesians 4.15. Where do we start in understanding this? Well, we also talked about this this morning. We start with the mirror, as Errol said. All of us, all of us stand naked and guilty at the foot of the cross. We are in no place to judge, especially unbelievers. Why do we expect unbelievers to act like anything else other than unbelievers? What did you act like when you were an unbeliever? I acted like a rank pagan. So funny with this cancel culture, people are worried about digging up things in your past and canceling you and exposing you. I'm waiting for one Christian to say, yeah, what did you expect? I was a pagan. Wouldn't that be refreshing? I'm a sinner saved by grace. Next. You think that's bad? I got a whole lot more I can show you. Wouldn't that be nice? And then just watch cancel culture go, well, I don't know what to do with that. Good night. We all stand naked at the foot of the cross. Well, what's great about this, just like Paul does in Ephesians, he gives you, he gives you a couple of chapters of, of doctrinal, and then he gives you the practical. Chapter 3 is where he starts the practical. So as he starts out, in light of this worldly philosophy, which is really another gospel, it's crept into the church, we must ask the question, understanding this, how then shall we live? Look, my job as pastor, our job as elders, is not to make you more highly educated. If that was true, we'd send everyone to seminary, we'd line the walls with degrees, and we'd feel real smug about ourselves, and we'd be no better than Pharisees. We're meant to take this doctrine out for a spin. We're, we're meant to put it to use. We're meant to do great commission work taking the truth of the gospel and making disciple, making disciples. And trust these truths, the faithful men, what? Who will be able to teach others also. So how then shall we live? Well, first, realizing we have a new identity, we are to, verses 1 through 4, set our mind on the things above. You know, it's amazing when we quit focusing on the temporal, we fit, quit focusing on the material, and we focus on the eternal, then our life is no longer about us. It's hidden in Christ, as it says there. It's no longer about our social status, our popularity, or God forbid, even our ethnicity. It's about Christ. We've been saved for eternity, but we've been left here to do His business. 
That's one reason why we keep talking about how we're not attending church here. We are the church. When we talk about, hey, this is the missions we have going, we're expecting everyone to serve. Why? Because we don't want looky-loos. Because Jesus doesn't save looky-loos. He saves people who farm the field, who sow the seed, who wash the feet, ambassadors of Christ who proclaim the truth. And in order to proclaim the truth, we got to know the truth. In order to keep our eyes focused on the truth, we have to set our mind on things above. I love what Ramesh Richard says. I've repeated this several times. It's understanding our new identity in Him. We understand that first and foremost, we are in Christ. We are a disciple of Christ. And then we can say we're cleverly disguised as an engineer, a teacher, black, white, Latino. All those are secondary, way secondary identities that are in the rearview mirror of life. Our first identity is in Christ. Secondly, if you look at verses 5 through 11, this new identity brings about a transformation. We saw that last week. It talks about the old man putting to death the deeds of the old man. We use this phrase to execute the deeds of the old man. That old man, he's six feet under. We don't dig him up. The church is the new man where there is to be no lying about the gospel, no adding to the gospel, not saying that I'm better than you because of either what you've done or what I've done or what you need to do in order to be like me. Those are lies. It's what the Colossian heresy was doing. You need to do this. You need to, you need to observe this day. You need to not eat that. Those are lies. Those are lies that are saying you attain to a higher standard with God. You attain His favoritism. You attain some forgiveness by something you do. That is a lie from the pit of hell. We are saved by grace. Grace, the power of God to save a man. Through faith, the medium by which He saves us. Through hearing the Word of God. The Holy Spirit regenerating us, freeing our wills, and giving us an affection for Him. And this brings about an identity in which, look at verse 11, there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free man, but Christ is all in all. And I love that verse. Because we kind of broke it down. We said, look, our new nature in Christ, our identity in Christ, there is no identity politics in the church. And we talked about how this Jew and Greek, there's no racial division. There's no corporate guilt. There's no adjectives like white evangelicalism or black church. Those things divide the body of Christ that was purchased with his own blood. There's no circumcised or uncircumcised, meaning there's no religious division. There's no spiritual pro team or, or, or spiritual farm team. There's no A and B league. We don't bring this I'm better than you or you owe me. The Bible is abundantly clear on what total depravity earned every single one of us. There's no barbarian, Scythian. There's no social division. I love this. 
listen to this, there is no wrong side of the tracks in church because we're all from the wrong side of the tracks, right? I, I love that, that part, especially about the, the Scythian. Scythian was a barbarian who was most likely also a slave, both of which were looked way down upon by the Greeks, and yet in the first century church, in the body of Christ, that barbarian Scythian slave could have very well been an elder over the Greek PhD at Athens University. You want to talk about anti-racism. Look at that. God brings about a new work of which melanin in your skin, social status, economic status, simply doesn't even come close to the greatness of our identity in Christ. So if last week we looked at how our identity in Christ produces a transformation, and he used a lot of corrective terms, corrective terms that, that were kind of focused on the mouth, and out of the mouth the heart speaks, anger, malice, slander, abusive speech. That's the old man, he said. Kill that stuff. That's not us anymore. This week, we have a, a set of virtues. We have identity in Christ in positive terms. And what it focuses on, if last week was transformation, this week is reconciliation. If you're taking notes, and I would encourage you to do so, our timeless truth is healthy churches actively pursue unity by putting on a heart that reflects our identity in Christ. Let me say that again. Healthy churches, remember this is written to a church, so we don't read this individually. Healthy churches, of which I hope we are and hope we're becoming, we actively pursue unity by putting on a heart that reflects our new identity in Christ. Unity comes from actively reflecting our new identity, not from holding on to our old identity. Sermon breaks into two parts. The majority is spent on the first one. Put on a Christ-like heart. Put on a Christ-like heart. And secondly, pursue a Christ-like unity. Look at verse 12. You kind of see these parallels. Put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. Verse 14, put on love. It's implied there, but it draws upon it. So let's look at this first one. Verse 12, so as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Now, before we get to this, this list of how this new man is addressed, there's something here that's easily overlooked. Those who have been chosen, holy and blameless. So I want you to imagine... You're a first century Jew. You're living in the diaspora, meaning you're living outside of, of Israel, outside of Jerusalem. You're living in Colossae. And you've become a believer. You've repented of your sin. You've placed your faith in Jesus Christ. We read this letter and we have a tendency to sanitize it, but there, there are real faces and real names that we'll meet when we get to heaven of people who are part of that church. And you're going to meet a Hiram one day. And Hiram, you know, what was it like for you? And he's going to say, I left everything to follow Christ. 
I was excommunicated from my synagogue. I lost my job in the Jewish quarter as a craftsman. Now, now I'm shoveling manure for the Romans in their horse stalls. I had a woman I was supposed to marry. I was betrothed to her. But she kicked me to the curb after I was no longer considered Jewish. And if all of this wasn't bad enough, my whole family considers me dead now. So with that pressure on him, can you imagine false teachers introducing a worldly philosophy that says, you know, if you'll just observe this day, if you'll just do this and don't do that, God will like you more. Remember, he likes Jews. And hey, you probably won't be persecuted that much because you're kind of doing some of the old Jewish stuff. And then imagine the Greek guy. Okay? Maybe his name is Spartacus. He thinks he's really tough. He was a big man on campus. He repents and places his faith and trust in Jesus Christ. He becomes part of the church here at Colossae. And his family thinks he's joined a cult. In fact, they call him an atheist now because he only worships, worships one God instead of a pantheon of gods. He can't go to any sort of family celebrations anymore. Not that they would have him because they all take place in the pagan temple. He's alone. And you hear these words as the elders reading them from the beloved Apostle Paul. And he says, so as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved. And do you know what you hear, whether you're a Jew or a Greek? That's family talk. It's like hearing a song from your childhood where you know it by heart. That's old covenant Jewish talk where God talks about his little Yeshurun, his little upright one, the, the, the nation of Israel, who are not very mighty. That's why he, did. he didn't choose them because of that. He purchased them and brought them out of Egypt. He cared for them. He brought them to the promised land. You hear that and you start to realize, I'm one of his. I'm one of his children. And you start to read this and it's as if God is saying, you're mine. I've purchased you. I've saved you. Deuteronomy 14.2, this is the chorus they hear in their head. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God, and the Lord has chosen you to be a people for His own possession. No matter what anyone says out of all the people who are on the face of the earth, and you've been chosen and you've been set apart for His use. You've been made an ambassador to represent the King. And you are loved we see election, selection, and affection. And it screams of something like 1 Peter 2.9. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. And I have skipped over that a thousand times. And it's like Paul's encouraging them against these standards that are being put upon you that say you're either not forgiven or you're not good enough or you need to do this or you're guilty. They say, no, you're God's. 
through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Just like in the Old Testament, He chose you. And in light of this, He says now, put on the clothes of the new man. Literally clothe yourself. That's the verb there. Clothe yourself. And again, it's like when you were a kid. Saturday's bath day. Sundays go to church, right? And you walk in your room and mom's laid out your Sunday go to meet and clothes. And what are these clothes like described here? Well, it's a compassionate shirt. It's a kindness khakis. It's a, it's a gentleness leather belt and it's a striped patience tie. And that sounds silly, but you won't forget it. You won't forget it. They're the clothes of the new man. They're not like the raggedy overalls of anger, malice, slander that you used to wear when you were, when you were a pagan. These are, these are new characteristics, new traits that reflect our identity in Christ. And these new traits are going to produce something in the body. So think about these traits as an attitude, and we're going to see something in a moment here as an action. So in the body of Christ, we are to literally put on a heart of compassion. Uh, I say literally, actually literally is put on bowels of compassion. Isn't that funny? In the ancient Near East, the seat of emotion was your bowels. We just translated heart because bowels don't translate real well. Okay? But it is put on this heart of compassion, put on this Christ-like heart. Why? Because these new clothes engender unity not division. So look at them with me. Look at how the old man's clothes, the old greasy, angry overalls, look how they engender division. Anger. What is anger? I feel like I've been done wrong. That's anger. Okay? What's wrath? I'm extremely angry because I feel like I've been done wrong. Malice? I intend to hurt someone or make someone pay because I feel like I've been done wrong. Slander, I'm going to lie about someone because I've been done wrong. Abusive speech, I'm going to demand things from others because I feel like I've been done wrong. Lying, I'm going to tell you you've done me wrong so that you can repay me and make me feel better or look better. Worldly philosophy, division, division, division. Old man's clothes, I, 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 I. It's a worship of self. Now, let's contrast it with the new clothes of our identity in Christ. Verses 12 and 13. Compassion. What is compassion? It's a concern for others rather than self. Kindness. It's being friendly and considerate to others. Humility. It's considering others more important than ourselves. Which, by the way, is not the false humility of the asceticism we see here. Or, if I could contemporize it, not the false humility of lament that we see out there. This is, this is oh, I'm going to come and I'm going to weep with you about something that was never done to you. And somehow that's going to make it okay. That's penance. Okay? False humility. Gentleness. It's tenderness with others. And patience is accepting or tolerating others. What are the new man's clothes like? Others, others, others. Unity, unity, unity. If I knew nothing else about these worldly philosophies, social justice, critical race theory, wokeness, 
I'm, I'm, I'm smart enough to look at them and say, those things create division. Those things are about me, what I want, what helps me. This Christianity thing, it's got to be real because no one would actually choose it. It's about others. It's about dying to self. It's about creating unity. And what does this new attitude, these new clothes, what action does it result in? Look at verse 13. Two things. Bearing with one another and forgiving one another. Bearing with one another and forgiving one. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord, what? Forgave you, so also should you. Not I can forgive others, but I should forgive others. Bearing with one another. Hey, that's, that's being patient. That's, that's enduring someone's idiosyncrasies, personality, immaturity. Forgiveness, that's even when they do you wrong. Granting forgiveness. Forgiveness, it's... It's canceling the debt. It's, it's letting it go. Kids, right? Let it go. Okay? <laughs> Adults, it's forget about it. Okay? Forget about it. It's done. You know, Clara Barton, who founded the American Red Cross, was at a party one night, and a friend walked up to hers, her and said, uh, do you see so-and-so's here? And it was a person who had really, really done her wrong in the past. Did, did, did you see? She's here. Do, do you remember what happened? You know what Clara Barton said? No, I distinctly remember forgetting about that. I distinctly remember forgetting about that. Isn't that what our Lord does? As far as from the east is from the west, he forgets it. He distinctly forgets it. And by the way, this is not the normal word for forgive. This is the one that our Lord uses in the Gospel of Luke when he talks about the two debtors. It says, when they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. One interpretation says, he frankly forgave them. Do we as Christians frankly forgive? Do we let it go? Do we forget about it? You see, Christians, because of our new identity in Christ, because of our new nature, we do something regularly that no other people group in the world, no matter what their identity, can do or ever does. We forgive. We forgive because we've been forgiven. You know, one day you're going to be in heaven, and you may ask Jesus, Jesus, do you remember that that terrible thing I did shamed you and was wrong to the other person? He's going to say, I distinctly remember forgetting it. How can we do any less as Christians? How can we let that worldly philosophy, that stench of, of self-centeredness creep in? The hallmark of Christianity is reconciliation. And, and I'm not saying it's easy. Let's be fair here. Some of us out there have really, really been done wrong. Some of you have a horrible, 
situation. Someone has hurt you. But if you cannot forgive, or if you will not forgive, it's because you don't have the right perspective. You see, nothing has been done to you that is remotely near what you did to God. Nothing. I love the verse from that song, I will glory in my Redeemer. But I think we need to stop and remember what it says. I will glory in my Redeemer, whose priceless blood has ransomed me. Mine was the sin that drove the bitter nails and hung him on that judgment tree. I'm sorry, Pastor, I just can't forgive that person. Oh, so the sin they did to you was worse than what you did to Christ? Well, I wasn't there. I didn't nail his, nail, his hands to the cross. Yes, you did. And if you were there, you'd have been the one crying out. You'd have been the one saying, give me the hammer. All of us would have. There is no room for judgment when we stand naked at the foot of the cross. The posture of a believer is one of gratitude. All right, look at our next point. Pursue a Christ-like unity. So understanding this new identity that has this new set of clothes that produces unity, we still need to pursue it. Verse 14, beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Now, Paul is, I, I know this is written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but it is so interesting how the Lord uses his personality in writing this, okay? What do we know about Paul? Well, he was part of the Sanhedrin. He was brilliant. He studied under Gamaliel. It's, it's like saying he had his Ph.D. from Hebrew U. He had tenure. He was one of the, you know, the highest-ranking lawyers, religious leaders around. He was at least trilingual. He knew all of the Old Testament backwards and forwards. He probably, at very least, had the first five books memorized. And all of that, when the Lord saves him, he kind of he uses here. And yet, he's great with pictures. Because we've just talked about the clothes in our identity in Christ. When it says here, put on love, it's like saying this. And to complete the ensemble, put on the overcoat of love. Because it really brings it together. That's literally the feel. It's like it pulls it all together. And it just completes it. It's the bond. It holds it together. Beyond all these things, if the list of virtues is pictured as clothing, this is the matching black cashmere overcoat that ties it all together. What is love? Well, we've said it. It's agapao. It's that godlike love. It's that godlike love that not a one of us ever did or exercised as a pagan. It's that doing what is best for another regardless of the cost. It's loving others as an overflow of the love which the Lord gave us. And if you know Paul, you know he's drawing, it sounds like a parallel from Ephesians chapter 4, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Side note here, you know, with all the popularity we see out there, we run into a lot of people that have various ministries and this, that, and the other. 
You know the first question I ask them? So how's your church? And I listen. How's your church? And I don't listen for where they're a member of. I listen for how they're a part of their church. Because I don't care if you can teach. I don't care if you can write. If you can do all these things, but you're not putting on the bond of love, doing life with the body of believers, serving them, warts and all, frankly, I don't care how well you can preach. Because what it tells me is you don't understand your doctrine. Doctrine has an outlet, and that outlet is loving the body of Christ. Put on love. It's the tie that binds. Paul's goal here is not your best life now. It's presenting every man complete in Christ. That's Colossians 1.28. That's how he starts out. He says, my goal is every single one of y'all's spiritual growth. In Philippians, he talks about, hey, I find my joy, not because I'm sitting here in jail, in spite of sitting here in jail, because of our partnership in the gospel. Paul doesn't talk about, man, when I was in front of Mars Hill and I was waxing eloquently and preaching, that was the greatest thing, or, or I got so many likes on... Of course, he didn't have likes, but you know what I'm saying? You ask him, he said, what is the significance of your ministry? He'd say, Susie and Philippi is the significance of my ministry. Joe in Thessalonica, he's the significance of my ministry. He is who the Lord is growing and using my ministry to do it. That's his significance. When he says, you are my joy and my crown, that's what really matters to him. Put on love. And it is this kind of love that is the tie that binds. So ask yourself, the next time you hear someone talk about injustice, white guilt, demanding rights, is this a godlike love? Is this a godlike love that dies to self and lives for others? Or is it a worldly love that demands and demeans? And I'm going to make a very strong statement, but it didn't originate with me. If it is the latter, the one that demands and demeans, if it is the worldly philosophy, James not only calls it worldly, he calls it demonic. Don't dare treat this stuff lightly when God takes it seriously. It's the gospel that is at stake. Well, Celestin, our Rwandan student here, knew what we all know. The difference is he acted on it. He knew about forgiveness. But he didn't wait until his emotions agreed with it. He led his heart by leading with his mind in obedience. Not the other way around. He didn't wait till he understood. Let's be honest here. No one's rioting in the Congo or in Rwanda yelling Black Lives Matter. It's not happening. Okay? Why? Because apart from the gospel, black lives didn't matter in 1994. But with the gospel, with our newfound identity, Christ and reconciliation, even with those who have directly wronged us, is not only possible... It's not only expected, it's guaranteed. Amen? When you enter these doors, when the body of Christ comes together, we forgive because we've been forgiven. Why? Because we know that it was ours that nailed him to that tree.
Amen.